this episode of Love Service Wisdom, I'm interviewing a new friend, Lily Cushman, who I met when I was at the Ram Dass retreat this past May in Maui. She's one of the first people that I had like a real connecting conversation with and was certainly someone that I felt an instant kinship with and a real resonance. And uh, we discovered that she was from Boise, Idaho, where I live now. And she's currently in the Bay Area, but has been like a 20-year yoga practitioner and has owned a studio. And oh, she's wrote a book called A Little Bit of Mantra, An Introduction to Sacred Sound, which I didn't know it at the time. But when I was perusing the books there in Maui, it was the one that caught my eye that I'd told myself I was going to buy when I got back. And so that was her book. And she was just a total sweetheart and somebody that I just couldn't wait to get to know a little bit more. You know, when you meet those people that you feel like, oh yeah, this is, they're in, they're, there's a soul connection. This is my tribe. She's my friend and made me feel very comfortable being a kind of newbie at the retreat in Maui where most people have been there for many, many, many years. And that was my first time. So she was very gracious and welcoming. And I just got to see her as well at the Neem Karoli Baba Ashram in Taos, New Mexico when I was there in June for the Hanuman Mandir opening. And she was one of those who was uh, leading the Hanuman Chalesa in the Mandir. And so I had the good fortune of being able to listen to her chant and chant and chant along with her uh, during that really special time. And so our conversation today, it kind of dives into yoga and the practice of yoga and a little bit of our backgrounds and our motivating forces and uh, what's influenced us along the way and um, also about her new book and all kinds of great things. So it's a wonderful way to get to know Lily Moore. And here is one of her songs that we'll use as an introduction into the episode. So this is Lily Cushman. Enjoy.
Lily. Thanks for joining me today. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks. I'm really delighted to have you as uh, really like my very first remote podcast interview guest for my new (laughs) show. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, you were like the very first person to come to my mind when I was thinking about who I wanted to interview. And I think it's for, I don't know, a couple different reasons. And I mean, I know we recently met just back in May, so we don't know each other very well. Mm-hmm. at all but from the time that we met it felt like there was a very like I don't know simpatico soul resonance of like <laughs> I like this person a lot oh, yeah. I know yeah, I've met I'm- different girlfriends through my life and usually when I've met some really significant girlfriends this inner part of me is like I'm gonna make her my friend <laughs> yes I love it <laughs> totally and so, a podcast is like a perfect excuse for us to hang out. It's great. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And just from the little that I know about you, I really respect the work that you're doing out there in the world. To give the listeners a little bit of a background, and you can give a lot more, you're currently the director of operations for the meditation teacher, Sharon Salzberg. Mm-hmm. And you've worked really closely for a long time with Krishna Das. And you're a longtime yogi. You co-founded the Brooklyn Yoga School um, mm-hmm. about the same time that I opened my studio here in Boise, which is about mm-hmm. nine or 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you're also a musician, a lifelong musician. And you love, you're a bhakti yogi and also like a classically trained teacher through the Dharma Mitra lineage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, but most importantly, I grew up in Boise. I feel like we yeah. 100% start there. <laughs> you grew up in Boise. Because when we met, I mean, I've been like hanging out in the in the Ramdas community and, you know, KD's circles for a long time and I have never met another person from Boise in like, you know, decades. So when you're like, "Oh yeah, I live in Boise." I was like, "What? Stop everything. <laughs> Let's start there." <laughs> so you grew up in Boise, Idaho. Yeah. I did. And I feel like we're probably about the same age too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I might be older than you. Um, I le- I graduated from high school in 97 and, oh, me and too. left right right about that time. Yeah. So Okay, we're, so we're probably we're, the same age. Yeah. But I grew age. up in Daytona Beach, Florida. So Ooh, okay. I, I moved to Boise ten years ago, almost exactly. Amazing. Yeah. Well, it's kind of an amazing connection. I mean, especially like if you grow up in Idaho, um, usually like if you're going to make it out, you don't go very far. <laughs> you, you, maybe go go to like, you go to Portland, maybe you go to Seattle. If you're really crazy, you go to California. And uh, so for me to like go all the way to the East Coast was a big shift and a big change. And um so it's, it's is that for college when you went to the Berkeley College of Music? Yeah. Yeah, I left to go to go to college and to study voice and uh and so it's been kind of amazing though to see how um some parts of Idaho has stayed just exactly the same. Like you were just up in the sawtooths and like I grew up in, you know, in that neck of the woods and parts of that look exactly the same as my childhood and then there are really parts of of Idaho that are so awakened now and like just a really amazing, like creative endeavors and so many seekers there. So 
I love that you're there and like holding it down. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, Boise's popping. It is. Mm-hmm. It's really mm-hmm. starting to explode. The way that I describe it to people is it feels like a city that's blossoming, like it's becoming. Mm-hmm. And so the energy is really activated and fluid. And there's also these entry points for people to come in, especially entrepreneurs, the young people mm-hmm. who have ideas and are hardworking and are humble and want to do good. The city... Mm-hmm embraces that it's like yeah let's do it let, let, let's let's all band together and help each other create the lives that we want to create versus maybe like another city let's say denver or even portland mm-hmm. perhaps now where it's sort of become solidified in a way like it is mm-hmm. what it is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. boise doesn't yeah. have that yet mm. it's becoming it's becoming yeah and i feel like for a lot of people who are you know s- seekers or looking to create something new and innovative that comes with a very certain price point because like most of most of those endeavors start in a very humble way like you're saying and so you need to be somewhere where you know rent is cheap and you still have access to things and that you can build your your vision without (laughs) without like tons of money um so that's good yeah, that's been my experience for sure, especially with my studio and different projects like Tree Fort Music Fest and mm-hmm. um, different community events and I don't know, just all kinds of stuff. I feel so grateful to live here. I really, really do. It feels like a small town where having grown up in Florida, I also describe this too, like the energy in Florida when you meet somebody in my experiences, what can I get out of you? What can you do for mm-hmm. me? Or how can I mm-hmm. swindle you in a lot of ways? Mm-hmm. And then in Idaho and Boise, it's how can I help you? What do you need? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I For years when I would visit, you know, to come see my family there, friends, uh, especially when I was coming from Manhattan or from Brooklyn, there was always this like really intense adjustment period of exactly that transition going from like a, a, a place where you have to really put up walls because everybody wants something from you to like a 10 minute conversation with the barista at flying <laughs> M, which is like the way you do it there and is totally amazing and safe and wonderful and beautiful. But that first day I'm always just like, what do you want? What do you want? Say, no, no. And then it's like, oh, you're noisy. You're fine. <laughs> yes. Exactly. It's pretty great. Yeah. (laughs) Where did you go to high school? Can you tell our listeners? Um, Yeah, I went to Capitol High. Even though I I was in the North End, I actually went out of district for various reasons. And um, but I I'm uh, like a North Ender all the way. So that's where I'm at now. 18th and yeah. Oh well, I grew up on 18th, like just a couple blocks from State Street. So oh my gosh, so amazing. So good. Well, so you grew up here in Boise and then Mm -hmm. you moved out to the East Coast. Yeah. And I really moved East to pursue music. I, I, um, I really connected with music from a pretty young age. I started studying voice when I was maybe nine or 10 years old. And it just really, um, it was my path for a long time. And I think the East Coast was kind of on my radar because my my mom had grown up in Manhattan and um, so I just sort of gravitated east for whatever reason and, and ended up in New York after, after school to pursue a music career and um, did that for, for a long time. And uh, it's a, I mean, I think 
you can really carve a path through any endeavor when you go for it entirely, whether you're like an electrician or a musician or a yogi, like whatever it is that you really give your heart to, like you're going to learn everything about yourself in the process. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was music for me for a long time. And, uh, and that was singing or other parts of music? Yeah, mostly singing. Um, I studied production and engineering also. So I made my living as a recording engineer, which was really kind of great. And at this time in the music industry, that was really this kind of burgeoning, just creative opening when when things shifted into the, the digital realm and um, that just enabled so many people to be able to create music in a just like a very independent way. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first started school, it was actually like, <laughs> we started in like studying old analog, um, like synthesizers and uh, recording to tape. And, you know, in order to, to track music, you used to have to have this huge budget and um, it was just really inaccessible to use that as a creative outlet. So through those four years that I was at Berkeley, Pro Tools came in and and it was just this like huge expansion. And so the way that music is made now was just kind of being birthed. So that was a lot of what I also explored was electronic music and how to create music from like sampling other things. And um, like a lot of what, what East Forest does now that's so amazing. Like those were some of my early creative days. Um, and like intertwining that with vocals. And so it was pretty fun. It's a fun time. Who were some of your favorite artists at the time? Um, I listened to a lot of electronic music coming out of Germany at that time. And because Berkeley was a really, still is a very international school. Um, But like groups like Tosca or something like that, um, who I just loved. And I also grew up singing jazz and opera and folk so there was kind of a really interesting mishmash of um people who were really kind of like old school and like sampling old jazz and then how that sort of interfaced with these like very modular synth based kind of uh, like really great experimental music so yeah i think of like acid jazz or something like that <laughs> yeah yeah um so it's pretty great Cool. And so you then you moved to New York City. And when did you find yoga? Um, I actually started practicing my first semester in college because I I just was kind of overwhelmed with what that experience entailed um, and trying to figure out how to be a person and take care of myself. And I uh, was recommended yoga as just a kind of more holistic path to care for my body. And I had a sense really early on that if I went to a gym, it would just make me really vain and like (laughs) (laughs) miserable. Uh So, um, so I started with a VHS, uh, in 1998, a VHS of Patricia Walden practicing. Um, and I, (laughs) I just did that every day for years and years and years. And I started to learn on my own from books, but it was just this like very kind of quiet private thing I did. Um, 
which my family gave me so much flack for because I really was not a, like not an exercise person. I was, <laughs> I was like the one person in my family that didn't want to do all the activities. Uh-huh. Um, even though I liked camping and, you know, hiking and stuff, I just, you know, was like kind of a miserable teenager and all of that stuff. So for me, it was a big deal to, to do that kind of practice and undertake such a thing. And it, and it just, I would just roll out of bed every day in my pajamas and do my routine. And, um, I, so it was interesting to like come into it that way. Cause I didn't realize that was such an anomaly until many years well, later. I have another similarity there too, where I am not, and as a teenager, wasn't a physical athletic mm. person at all. I wasn't mm-hmm. in touch with my body. The sports I tried to play, I failed at miserably. And um, <laughs> love it. <laughs> I remember I tried to join the swim team because everybody said, oh, you would be such a great swimmer. And I joined it and I was like, why would I be in the pool and want to work hard? Like, where's my float? Like, I didn't want to lay around. I was the worst on the swim team. <laughs> So that was like, that was yeah. how I was athletically. And I found yeah. yoga through a book, the Richard Hittleman's 28 day mm. exercise plan mm-hmm. in like 2000. And that's what started me. So I was also this yeah. like quiet home practice out of a yeah. book by myself. And then through that, really becoming aware of one, how out of touch I was with my body and two, how good it felt to get into my body in even these like mm-hmm. micro little ways. Cause mm-hmm. the book was pretty simple, as probably your videotape was as well. Yeah. That demanding um, physically. Right. But so much started to open for me just through a little bit of an asana practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was also really out of my body. And I, I was, I think it took me coming in to it just in the slightest bit to realize what a disconnect there really had been there for a long time. And I, I was like a very gangly teenager. I'm six feet tall. And it, it took me many years to figure out how to just inhabit my long limbs and (laughs) not be like tumbling all over the place or slouching Um, or, Oh yeah. Oh, so much slouching queen of slouching. And, uh, yeah, so it was um it was a pretty amazing it was kind of one of those things where I didn't realize at the time when um this person recommended yoga to me like it was actually this huge opening that was happening in my life and it came in in such a casual kind of non you know no fireworks way um but really quickly I decided to undertake a daily practice with it, which at the time didn't even seem like a big deal. I didn't even set a time frame of how long I would do that for. But now I find that so fascinating. Like, where did that even come from? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but somehow that was in me and I just started doing it. And um, so I became the weird person that did yoga and I would do it like if I crashed at my friend's house. I would do my practice there in the morning or if I was in Argentina or Italy, like it didn't matter if I was in a hostel on the other side of the world or on a boat with my uncle, I just did it every day. And, um, I think that's a pretty, uh, fascinating thing to look back on now because, um, 
where we find the motivation for such things is so mysterious. And uh, so it's kind of, it's kind of fun to look back on it in that lens. Yeah. Do you consider past life connections to the practice? Um, Yeah. And I also think like, we don't really know what that is. Like, like, but there's gotta be something there, you know, because this was certainly beyond any, um, anything I'd ever sort of taken on before. And even though I was a very serious musician, um, this was such a discipline and I just took to it in a really, I don't know, easy way. And, um, didn't necessarily, you know, like I wasn't one of those people that was like, I'm feeling bliss and no, 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 no. I've never been one of those people. I'm always just like, oh, this is terrible. But one part of me really just knew like, this is very good for you. Like this is going to help you in ways you can't even measure. And, and that was enough. Um, so yeah, I think I probably had spent a fair amount of time practicing and many bodies other than this one. And uh, this was just kind of a return to it. And what a blessing to have found it at like, what were you, 19 or Mm -hmm. 20 or so. And it's just been a through line, a lifeline Mm -hmm. through your whole uh, evolution. Yeah, entirely. And and especially when, um, you know, I started to really encounter a lot of just really difficult life stuff, some big losses in my family and the death of my mother and some other close family members. At that point, I had, I had had the practice for some years already, you know, for four or five years uh, in some cases. And I don't know what I would have done with, without that anchor. Um, Mm. So I really, um, I really like for people who are, who are uh, asking the question of like, oh, when should I undertake a practice? I just say, do it now because you just don't know what's coming down the pipeline. And the sooner that you can start cultivating those inner tools of resilience, like the better off you're going to be to just handle whatever is going to unfold in your life because we really just don't know. And, and life can be brutal. You know, it's a lot of, a lot of hard things happening. So um, I think without that, I would have been really lost for a long time. Yeah, ditto, ditto. And I would say you certainly carry with you the presence of someone who's had a practice for mm-hmm. a min- many, 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 many years. Mm-hmm. Like a certain level of calm, connection, um, just your own presence with other people, your willingness to just, it seems like adapt and I don't know, like your, your self-acceptance as well. You can feel it. It resonates. Oh, that's, that's very good to hear. It's so interesting to, um, and I'm sure you've encountered this yourself having a practice for so long. Um, I think when I was first starting, of course, the place that I would measure uh, you know, how is this affecting me was in a pretty, you know, just immature, like, oh, well, how can I put my head over here in this part of my body? Like, it was a very, like, sort of basic gauge of progress. Yeah, the external. The, totally external. And um, 
and it was pretty incorrect. You know, like the, over the years I really shifted into where I would see benefits were often very seemingly unrelated. And it wasn't that I would like not lose my shit, but when I did, I could recover so much more quickly or, you know, I didn't take things as personally. And, um, yeah. How's that been for you? Like, as you've lived with it, do you think your sense of like what it's changing in you has evolved? I, I think when I, because like I said, I wasn't very physical. I never really had that great physical striving in my practice mm-hmm. to do certain things. I remember wanting to like learn how to do headstands and that I taught mm-hmm. myself how to do fairly easily for whatever reason. And then other things like I've kind of come and gone with like, oh, if I could just do this thing, but my motivation towards it is really very small. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it doesn't usually last that long. But I remember a moment so long ago when I was in this intense class down in Nosara where I trained and I was struggling with tortoise pose. Mm -hmm. And there was one of the assistant teachers next to me and he kind of like peeked under his leg and he said something like, just breathe. And I started to do that while I was in the posture and that, and then I like, fell and opened up into the full expression of the pose through really focusing Mm. on my breath. And that really stuck with me so Mm. intensely. And so I feel like I've tried to use it maybe in that way, the asanas at least to help to focus and harness my mind in a way, like I said, I'm perhaps not as disciplined Mm -hmm. physically. Mm -hmm. And then on the like inner realm I know that it's helped me to become more and more and more and more and more and more always unfolding, a more self-aware person. And Mm. just recently, I don't know if you've had this experience, like kind of turning 40 and there's like been a a sort of crest in my life. And I feel like a lot more things have begun to open up in my psyche Mm. way beyond even what I thought. And looking back, I think, Girl, you thought you were so awakened in your 20s and you want you had like so much more like I don't know, like just I don't want to say pride, but like a larger mm. sense of self than was probably um mm. true. <laughs> because mm. I'm just now feeling like I have so far to go. And I didn't mm-hmm. feel that way when I was younger, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like when I was younger and I was practicing, I was like, oh, I've got so much figured out. And now I'm more like, I don't have yeah. anything figured out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, yeah, totally, totally the same. I feel like every time I kind of um, just deepen, it's always accompanied by this feeling of like, oh, I just don't know anything here. Like it, it really kind of clears the decks in this beautiful way. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and I, I will say like, I am so much softer with the, when I'm looking back at like how I used to be with myself and how seriously I would take myself. And I just kind of look at it now and it's like, I just laugh because like, you know, we're always doing the best we can, but, I did some ridiculous shit and just thought I was like, you know, so, so right on point there at that time. So, um, yeah, yeah, 
it definitely, uh, I think increases your ability to just like embody that, that unknown, um, factor that's always there, but you know, so much of the time that kind of a space is really terrifying Mm -hmm. to be in. So we have to kind of like put ourselves in a box and no, this is it. And I'm totally in control of things. (laughs) I got this down. I've got it sorted out. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, yeah. (laughs) For you, did your yoga lead you to, let's say your spiritual practice? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think it definitely facilitated a lot of it for me. Um, I, yeah, it kind of gave me a vehicle, I would say. Um, I had definitely been seeking before that, and I worked for some time studying with a shaman in Idaho, and, and I had some big modeling from both of my parents. My, my mother had been a nun for like six years before she had a family. Okay. She was a real spiritual seeker. And then my father, like I grew up with my father in like men's group and he was like a mountain climber and was very much a seeker, like through nature. Cool. So yes. I had some very interesting modeling in that way that didn't have so much to do with like a lineage or a path. It was much more free form. So um, that was kind of where I started as a seeker, but Asana really gave me a way to interface. And, and then eventually when I met my first teacher, Dharma Mitra, I really went kind of all the way into classical yoga and the eight limbs and a lot of the philosophy and self-inquiry and, and all of that. Um, so from there, I kind of went into lineage, so to speak. Um, and but I think um, what's kind of amazing about being a seeker is that there's not a set route for any one person. Um, and depending on, you know, kind of what your individual makeup is, like, there's so many ways to discover who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't have to mean becoming like Hindu or a Buddhist or whatever, like, um, you can learn everything, um, in the simplest of ways. And just like how you pick up a glass of water, you can see everything about yourself in that moment. It can be that, that simple. So, um, I love that accessibility a lot. Um, Yeah. And in many ways, as you know, there's no beginning and there's no end mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you're just in it. And totally. we fall in and out of remembering to different degrees, it feels like, over time and in waves and it comes and goes. And we're always on it, even when we think that we're not. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. So, and I find that, um, you know, there's a part of me that I think has always been really practical about being um, on a spiritual path because. Um, I'm really looking for things that qualitatively change my experience. And, um, and I think as a teacher, that's something that I've always really, um, grounded into, like, 
like take along the tools with you that are helpful and you know you can really apply in your life in a real way and then let go of the rest like if it's not helpful don't take it with you so you know if something really helps you to um even understand how to change your relationship to your own fear and move from a contracted state to a more expansive state. Of course, there's hundreds of ways to do that. But for me, finding the way that is like, oh, that works for me. This is the tool right here that for my particular, you know, tendencies and makeup, and maybe for one person, that's a body-based practice. And for another person, it's a heart-based practice and another person that's like a very mental, like yana-based practice. But we find a little tool and then we have that and we can use it in the day. Many times a day, we can take it with us and we can transform our actual experience. So it's a very lived thing for me. It's not just like holing up in my apartment and loving everyone from afar. It's like, no, okay, you're very um, active with it. You're very yeah. active and out there. Yeah. Would you say as a teacher, you're known for being quote unquote spiritual? Like, oh, is that a, a direction <laughs> that you give or are you more subtle about it? Because um, I know you can, like, you can lead a yoga class and not even say any kind of dharma and it's an incredibly spiritual yeah. experience. But where do you fall in that scale? Uh, yeah, I think probably that 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 is something that's said about me um and that it's like not coming from a dogmatic place you know i'm i i've i think because i've lived so long with these practices they're pretty integrated in me and i don't i don't there was a while when i like dressed really you know <laughs> i like really dressed the part uh-huh. and now i just sort of look like me and you wouldn't necessarily know from the outside based on my clothing choices or my jewelry or my I hairstyle i love that you were at the ashram in taos and <laughs> you know a lot of us were in the kurtis or the yeah. saris and yeah. you were in your short jean short <laughs> overalls and your white t-shirt and you're like this oh, is what yeah. i'm wearing yeah no that's, <laughs> that's the integration for me and there was a long time that i that I looked much more the part and it just kind of like, it's still in there, but um, I don't know. I think I've definitely had to figure out how to, since a lot of these traditions are coming from Eastern culture, how you kind of extract the, the gem that's in there and take it out of the culture itself and apply it to our culture because we have our own, stuff here that we have to wade through and figure out and to just tell someone, you know, do X, Y, and Z and not understand, well, there's a layer on that teaching that actually has to do with Indian culture and the way it's made up and those traditions that has nothing to do with the actual like science of yoga. Um, That's, I think, important. So there's always been a translation process for me. So I think when people you know, they say I'm spiritual. I'm also just very normal. And I've spent a long time thinking about like, how do you talk about these things in our language and our tone and our culture so that it's really easy to apply and understand. And yeah, there's not these like other cultural overtones. Um, so 
Yeah. And I asked you that because in my own life, I feel like I'm at this sort of edge internally where it's almost the sense of like coming out of the closet that I've been like this inner dialogue, like how much do I want to come out of the closet mm-hmm. as like incredibly spiritual? Cause I live my day from that mm-hmm. personally, mm-hmm. like start to finish, but I also am a very normal person mm-hmm. yeah. in my life. And I'm, and so I'm kind of questioning internally, like, am I doing a disservice by maybe not sharing more mm-hmm. or am I sharing just enough or am mm-hmm. I wanting to, I don't know. Like I said, I feel like I'm at like a little bit of an edge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's such a great experiment. And I think there's no right answer at all. It's, it's really just a matter of like, how, how do we express ourselves and, and what's really true to me? What is, um, what's a way for me to embody these, um, you know, these deep, um, beliefs about, you know, our own value system in the world, um, what meaning we make out of things, all of that. It's, it's, I think one of the most beautiful parts of this is to figure out like, yeah, what's, what's my version of this? How do I show up here? And when you're having a conversation with someone at like soccer practice and you're with like other parents, like what to say when, when someone's like, yeah, how's your week? And you're like, well, I'm like really working on the Niyamas a lot this week and you know, this and that and that. And like, is it appropriate to share? Is it helpful? Is it meaningful? Like, where does it live in you? Like, it's such a good undertaking. And yeah, I think full of like awkwardness too. So much awkwardness. (laughs) Awkwardness. I think my fallback has always been more of the embodied side of it. Like Mm. I'm just, I am it. And if people can vibe that, great. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't have to say anything. Mm -hmm. But I guess the inquiry is like, yeah, this internal like drive to maybe do more. Like almost like, have I been hiding in that way? Mm. By just being like that? Just be, mm-hmm. I don't know. So I guess it's kind of like a both and also, mm-hmm. but the authentic embodiment is really too where I feel like it's at, like you're saying. Oh yeah. And when I think about the people who have had some of the biggest effects on me, it, it wasn't the words that they said. It was the quality of being. It was just being in their presence. That was the marker for me of like, oh, I don't know what, what they're doing but they're being in a way that's totally different from anybody else I've encountered. So how did they do that? And that's what would kind of open up a dialogue in a different way, as opposed to someone who's like espousing things or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks. That was helpful for me to hash that out with you. Oh yeah. That was <laughs> so good. But I definitely cringe when I look back on some of my like, because I, I think when you get into something too, you're just like super enthusiastic. So you've got 800 malas and like, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm going to do this and this and this. And it just like, you know, it feels good. And and especially like, I, I think a lot of people who get into a practice, they feel at home in the community in a way that they often haven't in the rest of their life. So then it's like, yeah, I want to put on the outfit because I'm at home here mm-hmm. and I belong in a way that I maybe didn't elsewhere. So that's an interesting layer of it too. 
and uh, like getting to unpack that and just, you know, be more and more at home in our own skin as opposed to whatever the outfit might be. Um, exactly. And, and I, yeah. you're, it's, you're right. It's kind of, I think of it like a rubber band. It's like you, when you start, you want to like, you feel like you need to fit in really well. So you mm-hmm. put on the whole costume and you go pretty far into it. And then mm-hmm. over time you're like, actually, I don't need to. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I'm um, kind of uh, famous for yelling at my students for um, who I was training to teach that they're not allowed to talk in yoga voice because because <laughs> I just, you know, we all know what vo- yoga voice is, right? It's, <laughs> do we need a demonstration? Yes. Give us a demo, Lily. What's okay. your yoga voice? Well, and this is the funny side thing is that I, um, you know, as a musician, I've actually done a fair amount of voiceover <laughs> work throughout my life. And I happen to be the voice on Sharon Salzberg's podcast. That's like the, the bumpers, the introduction and the outro. So, um, and my voice, when I talk in a certain way, just sounds like a porn voice. That's just what it sounds like. (laughs) So yoga voice and porn voice sound kind of similar for certain people. Mm -hmm. And, um, but you know, when you're just like, you slow everything down and this is what we're doing now. And your left foot <laughs> is there like, Oh my God. So I very famously like, will really like again and again, try to strike that out of the vocabulary of teachers that I've trained because um, it isn't about becoming someone else. And of course you'll always, there's like volume appropriate, um, things to make decisions about. You're not going to be shouting at someone in the middle of Shavasana, but you can be you and you right. can be the most balanced version of yourself instead of just putting on this whole other persona of like, oh, I'm a good person and I behave this way and now I speak this way. And so um, now I, you're making me think I need to listen to my teacher trainers more to see who's doing the yoga voice or not. <laughs> I haven't busted anybody oh, for it it's yet. It's so good. It's so good. And it's a it's a great marker too of when somebody's like dialing it in versus like, okay, I'm just here. It's just me. And so um yeah, it's kind of a fun <laughs> it's a fun nuance to check out for sure. I have a good friend, one of my best friends that I have taken class from many times. And when he teaches, I've told him this to him, his face. Like it sounds like he's channeling an Indian sadhu. <laughs> he, he adapts this strange voice. Yeah. Yeah. And he's always taught that way. And even since I've told him that he hasn't changed it, but I didn't suggest that he changed it, but it gives me the sense of thing that he's channeling. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's also, uh, <laughs> well, it's a whole commentary on the, the industry of yoga too, which, you know, for, um, anyone who started practicing more than let's say 10 years ago, there was a really different landscape of kind of how these teachings came through initially versus once yoga got kind of picked up and churned through the, the commercial situation that is America. Um, so you, you, there's a lot of people out there who are 
you know, doing all variations of, of yoga that, that is, um, you know, kind of divorced from the actual practices of it. It's just more like, here's what this looks, looks like on the outside and we're going to mimic it and sell some yoga mats and some shirts and great. Um, yeah. So like, that's also like when you first peeve. spoke to like the gym, like, I don't want to go to the gym because what'd you say? <laughs> it was just going to make me more vain. It's going to make you more vain. You can yeah. do yoga that makes you more vain too. Yeah. Unfortunately. Definitely. Oh yeah. 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 There's the whole gamut of it now too. So, um, so for me, since I'm, you know, really rooted in, uh, more of a lineage base, but it's, um, you know, this is, uh, this is not only something that I do with my life, but I have a deep respect for where these teachings source from. So I'm sensitive to not just, you know, adopting the likeness of it and acting the part, but actually discovering it for real from the inside out and what that might look like. And that for each of us, just like you were saying of this crossroads, you're kind of at this moment, um, that's a really interesting process. Like, what does it look like for this revelation to open up from the inside out as opposed to, okay, I'll start from the outside. I'll start with the outfit, but maybe it's more starting from a feeling on the inner of, and then figuring out how do we express it? Mm-hmm. How do we show up differently? Um, all the different ways that can look. So yeah. And at the same time, like you're saying, honoring the traditions and then mm-hmm. being a part of the evolution too, mm-hmm. and really yeah. helping to to move it all forward yeah. as a person that's part of a lineage and your modern day, and it has always evolved. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the what's available now is so radically different than even five years ago in terms of the technology. And um, in my work with Sharon, um, a a big part of what I'm doing with, with her is kind of with many teachers of her generation and her age, you know, they're at a point where they're figuring out how to keep um, expanding the the reach of their teachings without having to physically travel so much. And, you know, as they're getting older and slowing down and also how are you going to, you know, um, capture the the history of their teaching. So when I came on to work with her, a big part of what we immediately started to build was um, virtual community as opposed to physical community, which she had, you know, been teaching for 40 years at that point. And it's just remarkable what you can actually do now. And she's hilarious because she's, you know, as someone who was literally one of the very first people who taught meditation in the United States, (laughs) she talks about these like early decisions that, that she and Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein would be making when, when they were deciding like how to put together this retreat center that they started the insight meditation society and that they for you know like weeks were discussing like should we have buddhas or should we not have buddhas <laughs> should we have buddhas not have buddhas and it was this long long conversation 
And to think that like that was this immense point of discussion at that time that, and that there was no landscape. There was, you know, nothing to be (laughs) spoken of. It was just all totally cutting a path out of the bush, out of the rough. And for now, there are literally to be, you know, like hundreds of apps on your phone where you can meditate like that, like how far we've come is just wild to really consider in one, one lifetime. And, um, so it's a lot of change and it is also just incredible what people have access to now, you know, that you, you can literally just be in your own house and get these like world-class teachers like satelliting into your home and you can get the whole path right there. So it's very interesting to kind of see how does it evolve and how can we continue, you know, as teachers and lineage holders and just explorers in this path, like how do we use these tools to, to do this in this like new mechanism that we're in? Yeah, in some ways, like you're saying, we're so blessed to have so much access. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it still just comes down to you doing the work. Like you have right. to get on your mat and you have to actually sit on your cushion mm-hmm. and you have to do the practices still. And I yeah. wonder if, maybe this isn't true, but I wonder if it's in some ways because of the, oh, just the breadth of the access, if it is perhaps people are more lazy about it because they don't have to try as hard to get it. Yeah. Well, I think have definitely you the, that at all or seen something I mean, like that. I think it takes less um, desire to get in the door than it used to. Like you used to have to like go right. buy the VHS. And, and so now, the desire kind of can sustain yeah. you. Yeah. But so I it. think the result is I've just seen a lot more people who are, uh, more casual about it coming okay. in and which is not to say that they aren't going to, you know, become s- more serious practitioners, but I think the entry point just isn't as high of a price as it used to be. Um, yeah. I'm seeing that too with yoga teachers uh, as well. Like having my yoga school, there's mm-hmm. people who are coming that are wanting to become yoga teachers and they've only been practicing for a couple months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is just yeah. Oh, yeah. so bizarre to me, but okay. Yeah, and the level of saturation is, is it's interesting because I also think it's really unprecedented how available it is. And when you look at, you know, where yoga lived in the cultures in the East, it really was something that lived in a very specific part of the culture. It was kind of, you know, what a lot of the outliers did, it was, or it was something that, you know, people would undertake these practices as a way, way to heal the body, but maybe because they just didn't have any other resources. Um, so it's very unprecedented the way it's inside of all our culture now. And I think in a hundred years, we're going to understand <laughs> like the effect that has. And I think some of it is really positive and some of it is also really torqued and kind of become distorted. So um, it's an all of the above situation for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. And 
grateful that it has the presence that it has, especially within mm-hmm. America. Imagine where we would be without it. Oh, yeah. Well, and I, I saw a really similar um, saturation happen in the music industry when there was that turning point when things shifted to be the, a digital currency instead uh-huh. of analog in terms of recording. And, and now you can record a multi-track song on your iPhone. Um, so, you know, like my niece records music and she doesn't need hundreds of thousands of dollars to go into the studio. And so you're seeing across the industry just like this plethora of creativity and people who would normally have not had a way in have a way in. And so there's like these incredible musicians and songwriters and performers from all corners of the earth who suddenly have a platform and would have never been heard otherwise. And there's a lot of terrible music that's coming out too. (laughs) It's both ends of the spectrum. It's like, yeah, you know, so that's sort of what I like in it too with, you know, who, who can get an app and start meditating. It's like, exactly. It's the whole spectrum. So that's a great analogy. It's a great analogy. Yeah. You know, I have a question for you. And personally, you know, me being a yoga studio owner Mm -hmm. and a teacher and someone that travels more now than I used to, and you started Brooklyn Yoga School. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming like I was in the beginning, you were super involved and probably taught a lot of the classes and were incredibly hands-on and now Mm -hmm. over the years are less so. Mm -hmm. And my question is, how has your studio, how's the school responded to that? Hmm. Well, um, it was a real evolution. Um, I, I think like a lot of studio owners, I was pretty um, idealistic and naive when I started that project. Um, because I was just really inspired and I wanted to make these practices available to people. Um, and had not gone to, let's say business school (laughs) as one who in any other industry probably would have done if they were going to start a small business and run a small business. Um, so yeah, I didn't really know what I was getting into. And I had managed my teacher's Otherwise, studio. Otherwise, you wouldn't have done it. Oh, no. And and the studio that was totally by donation, which was like, I definitely, <laughs> if I'd known really what that entailed too, I probably also <laughs> wouldn't have done it. Um, because that, um, in addition to the other challenges, was, um, you know, really remarkable, but took a lot more work because of that. But um, yeah, when I started, I was teaching 25 classes a week, 25, Wow! <laughs> and um, which was totally unsustainable. And um, no, you burned out, I'm sure. Yeah, I burned out and my body also pretty much just like broke at a certain point. Um, and um, so it was a real shift. And I... Um, 
you know, there's sort of two models of yoga studios that exist out there. This is real like nerdy insider talk. I'm sure your audience is going to love this. <laughs> but like a studio that's really based, that's a community-based studio versus one that's a, like a teacher-based studio, meaning there's like one head teacher that's kind of the star of the show and everything revolves around them. So that was inadvertently what what Brooklyn Yoga School was when I first started because um, people really gravitated towards my teaching and I was running the show. I was the mom. I was the, I was the person. Most people thought I just lived there. I would get that question a lot. <laughs> um, but that wasn't sustainable. So when it shifted to where it wasn't based on me, um, that was a hard transition. And, um, but I think uh, it's interesting what we were just talking about of kind of the level of interest from students. That was what shifted is that when I was teaching all the time, the student body was really serious and really focused um, because there was this incredible consistency with the classes. So it was pretty normal for a, your average student to be taking like four classes a week with me. Mm-hmm. And that kind of training is a really different level than, oh, I'm going to hop in and take class and I'm not sure who's teaching, but it'll be great. Um, that's just a more casual kind of student. It's like cooking on low heat versus cooking on high heat. Mm-hmm. So I think both are really valuable um, and have their pros and cons, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it, it it's a hard model to keep up and, and being donation, you know, just really, I wasn't really prepared for um, how kind of the reality of what that would be like running a business that way, because um, uh, my goal wasn't to change capitalist society. (laughs) It was more like like accessibility, right? It was a hundred percent accessibility. But what I didn't understand is that, in our culture, it's just so foreign. Um, people literally didn't even have the muscle, the skill set to be able to assess for themselves what is the value of, of a thing. Mm-hmm. Because our whole lives, we're told the value of the thing. We're like, okay, this sock costs $10. And this meal costs this much. And this costs this much. And people, it's like they totally go deer in the headlights when you're like, I want you to decide how much this sock is worth to you. Glitch. Yeah, it's a total glitch. And, and um, that's just like, that's such a deep level of systemic conditioning that one little tiny yoga studio in Brooklyn is not going to cut through. So, um, so we, uh, I mean, it was like a miracle that we lasted more than a year. I, we actually closed in the spring um, I closed the studio after nine years. This past which, spring? Mm-hmm, yeah, I did. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, because I didn't, like, for, for years, people have been saying, just turn it into a regular studio and you should charge more and X, Y, and Z. And I just never wanted to do that. Like, okay. for me, it was just the only way I wanted to do it was if it was the lineage that I really believed in from my teacher and I could get behind and that it was accessible. So 
it was sort of a fun experiment to see how long that could exist in a very pure form. So you didn't sell the studio? mm -mm, No, I didn't sell it. Just just closed the doors. And the students have been very bereft. It's been hard. It's been a hard transition. Oh, yeah. Um, But... um, yeah, it was time and congratulations for making that decision. I can only imagine <laughs> yeah, how long was... you must have thought about it. Oh yeah. Before there, doing it. There were many um moments through the years that I thought this is gonna be it, and then something would shift. Um so it was really a, an incredible project. I mean, the students there with me during that time were um just I don't know, because I think it was very, there were, it was such a kind of respite from a lot of studios that, you know, have to spend a lot of time thinking about finances and class packs and unlimited packs. And are you going to do the teacher training? And we just, I just never did that. I literally never advertised. I never talked about money. Um, so it was just kind of this nice break where people could come in and not have to feel like, Oh, we're, we're, (laughs) we're getting like pulled in. They want something from us. And as a result, people were super open to the teachings because they just trusted me in this other way. So that was really cool. And Mm -hmm. people went really deep and a lot of, um, a lot of other studios have been born from my students there who've gone on to start other places, which is great. So, um, yeah, so it was a pretty, pretty great endeavor. And I'm also really tired from it. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask how you feel now that it's sealed and done. Yeah. And- um, I mean, when we had the closing party, it was a really emotional night and, uh, and I, and everybody was asking me, you know, what, what's next, you know, uh, because I'd sort of been at the helm of this thing for so long. It was like, okay, mom, where are we going next? And I just kept saying, mom is tired. Mom needs a nap. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know. And I'm going to go lay down now. Yeah. I'm just going to go lay down. You guys just <laughs> have a snack. I'll be back. Um, so yeah, it's been a, it it definitely was a lot to process. And of course, um, as I'm sure you have felt with your studio, like it's your project and it's your, you know, you're at the helm of the community, but it also has a life and energy of its own and um, is so much bigger than any one thing that's in my sphere. So, um, yeah. So it's a mix of so many things. And I, I mostly just feel really grateful that um, I could have that experience. And um, and I really cut my teeth as a teacher there, as you might imagine, teaching 25 classes a week. It gave me this amazing setting to really understand the teachings in a different way because I was literally working with the same students for year after year after year, and I would be able to watch them and see what the results were and what were the blind spots that I was missing and, and that kind of thing. So that really informed my 
my ongoing work and evolution as a teacher as well, which I'm endlessly grateful for. Yeah. So wonderful. I was trying, you know, to ask the question, like, how did you navigate having a studio that's based around you and then transition into doing, being there less? And the answer seemed Mm -hmm. to be, well, the studio closed. Well, it it stayed open. No, it was about half the time we were open. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't totally direct result. No, I know. um, I know. But for me, I'm like, oh, (laughs) oh. I don't, Um, (laughs) I just signed another lease. Mm. (laughs) How's it feel? How does it feel? It feels, um, it feels really good. Like it feels like the studio wants to be there for a very long time. And, uh, I think in the beginning for sure, I was there so much that my energy just informed the space so mm-hmm. much and it still does. And I guess the thing that I struggle with now is sometimes when I hear from the students, like you're not here and we miss you or it's not the mm-hmm. same when you're not here. Mm-hmm. And I wish that it could still feel like whatever the same is without mm-hmm. me being there all of the time. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. But I, it, I love, 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 love that I can always come back and I've got my regular classes and I can, mm-hmm. and it, just fills me up so much to have that community. Well, and it's also, as I'm sure you've seen, um, like what I think initially uh, curating a space and supporting community is a very direct relationship. It's like you being in the room, but eventually um, you're going to be supporting it energetically almost more through the people you train who are then supporting and it's like a second tier kind yes. of and that's thing. happening but you yeah. know people they just still sometimes get stuck on the face totally yeah and i have almost sensed to like beginner yogis are much more open and forgiving than mm-hmm. some long-term yogis uh-huh. Can be a, little, a, little bit, a little bit attached a little bit attached, <laughs> attached yeah. and even just like a harder audience to teach oh to. yeah yeah Definitely. they know what they like and don't like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I also, I think holding community is a very specific role that is not necessarily, that's a different energy than a teacher. Because like a teacher can walk into a space and leave. So um, holding community is a different kind of stamina. It's a different kind of energy and prana. Like, and so, you know, that's got to be sustainable for you as a human being for your own happiness. And if you're primarily a teacher, like maybe you don't want, like I, I would always say like, I don't want to think about toilet paper. I want to teach, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So Uh it's, uh, it's like, it's a process, but, um, I have I'm some sh- great assistants now who think about toilet paper for me. Amazing. I, I walked into it. the closet just yesterday when I was at the studio. I'm like, oh, look at all this toilet paper. <laughs> Somebody got this and I didn't have to think about it. And it, it. wasn't me. Amazing. It wasn't me. I didn't have to say, go get it. I didn't have to say, how much was it? Yeah. No, toilet paper is pretty essential. People overlook that. <laughs> <laughs> There's not much else to talk about if you're at a TP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so I want to know how your Hanuman Chalisa is coming. Well, thank you for asking. I chanted it for the first time um, right before we started this podcast. Mm. I, when we met um, in Maui, mm-hmm. I hadn't started to begin to learn the Chalisa yet. And you and I talked about it or I expressed my desire, like, I'm going to mm-hmm. learn the Chalisa. And you said, you, and I maybe asked for tips or pointers. Mm-hmm. Said, Listen to the Nina Chalisa, which I didn't even know what that meant when you said that. <laughs> So I'm very now, very, 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 very familiar with the Nina Chalisa now, Nice, which is on Flow of Grace. And it's a mm-hmm. woman, Nina, I don't know her last name. Nina Rao. Yeah. Nina she's a Rao. good friend of mine. Yeah. She's, she's the female singer on mm-hmm. that album. And so mm-hmm. I've listened to that almost every single day since mm-hmm. we saw each other back mm-hmm. in May. And so I've I've listened to it as a way to like get the rhythm and the pacing and the timing mm-hmm. and chant along with it and rewind and chant and rewind and chant, and rewind and chant, and rewind and chant. Mm-hmm. And so just before we got on the podcast today was the first time that I chanted it without listening to music. Mm, exciting. And that That's was great. exciting. I was mm-hmm. reading it from the paper, but the melody yeah. and the feeling and the energy was just in me without having to hit play. So and great. I found kind of towards the end, there was maybe a different cadence and rhythm that was coming, but that mm-hmm. was cool. That felt great. Uh, do all of the listeners know what we're even talking about right now? No, they don't know <laughs> what we're talking about. Why don't you tell them? You're more of, okay. way more of the expert than I am. <laughs> well, the, the Hanuman Chalisa is this 40 verse prayer that um, is quite an endeavor to to learn because many mantras are are short many some of them are just single syllable mantras but this is a long prayer that is um really been kind of popularized by krishna das and it's a uh a prayer to this uh monkey god hanuman who um you may or may not have like seen images of um or you maybe have sworn a lot to yourself during this pose in a yoga class, Hanumanasana, <laughs> <laughs> which is like a full split, uh, which is named because um, Hanuman is, is from this amazing mythology, the story called the Ramayana, that is uh, like many of the mythologies around the world, but especially in Indian culture, is all about the, the balance of... Um, light and dark and these forces and different characters who are coming together to restore the balance across the universe at large. So Hanuman plays this very important role um, as the helper to the embodiment of righteousness and, and Dharma, the right action in the world, Ram. And so in the story, one of the things he does, he does all this awesome stuff, which is talked about in the Hanuman Chalisa, but he leaps across an ocean at a certain point. And in doing so, he leaps so broadly that his, it looks like his legs are in a full split. So that's what that pose is, is named for, um, which is worth all that swearing because yes. <laughs> yes, such is. a tough one. <laughs> but um, yeah, so in the Ram Das and Krishna Das world, this is a, a practice many people, myself included, do this prayer, this 40 verse prayer as a daily practice. And so, um, and it happens a lot like in the Maui retreats and um, 
but it's intimidating to learn. It's a lot. I mean, it took me years to learn it. And, um, but it's a very powerful daily practice. Um, just kind of really the anchor of my home practice. So I'm excited for you. Thank you. I, I, yeah, I, you know, I guess we're talking a little bit about mantra and bhakti now and kirtan and chanting and uh, the power of it is so incredibly profound and so much I feel I can't, you know, you kind of asked earlier, like how yoga maybe has changed me or the things that I've witnessed in my own life. But a lot of it, I can really see when I'm deep in my mantra practice, the things that start to shift and open up. Um, mm-hmm. And so I can't necessarily say this is happening in my life because I'm trying to learn the chalesa, mm-hmm. but a lot is going on and a lot yeah. is shifting mm-hmm. while since I've undertaken this practice, mm-hmm. it's incredibly yeah. profound and so powerful. And as a meditation, I mean, it's sort of become one of my main ways of meditating because as you know, I'm sure you, when you're in it, it's the only thing that you're thinking about, right? And so then that is your point of focus and your mm-hmm. it, it is your meditation. Obviously things can come and go out of your mind, but when you're really mm-hmm. with it, with it, it's like, it and then trying to learn it, the chalesa, which is so difficult. One of the things that's so difficult mm-hmm. about it is, is all the words are different. Mm-hmm. For a lot of mantras, it's JC Duram, JC Duram. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I got that one done. Yeah, but this is like, oh my goodness, you can't not do it, but through mm-hmm. continuous ingrained repetition, where yeah. it somehow eventually over time becomes mm-hmm. like embedded in your cells. Mm -hmm. That's how you learn it. Yeah. Well, and I'm curious how you, um, like how mantras found you or how you found them in your own journey. You know, I found mantras accidentally, let's say Mm -hmm. when I was in college and I, I started my spiritual journey in high school. And so I've been very much pursuing, I don't know, spirituality in so many different forms since I was 15 and always kind of had an interest in Buddhism because it's maybe one of the most popular forms of Eastern Mm -hmm. spirituality philosophies that we have access to. Mm -hmm. And so when I was in college, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to learn to meditate. And I was I was in Sarasota, Florida, and there was I saw down the street from where I lived. It was like coming soon, and it was this meditation center. And I'm like, oh, perfect. Well, when that <laughs> opens, I'm gonna go to this meditation center. So I went on the website, and this is like probably like 2000 or 2001 when uh-huh. websites aren't like they are now. Oh no, lots many <laughs> different platform. But it was like blessing empowerment, let's say March 14th. I was like, okay, I'll go to the blessing empowerment. That's the grand opening on March 14th. I'm just going to show up. And so I showed up on this day and I didn't realize the sign I'd been seeing was for the art gallery next to the meditation center. And the meditation center had always been there. Oh, I love that. Little white house next Uh to like beautiful terracotta gallery. 
that was opening. That was the coming soon was this gallery. (laughs) (laughs) So the blessing empowerment, if you're familiar, is like a huge day for Buddhist meditators of like deep activation with a different type of bodhisattva. And so you usually do that after you've been meditating and have a practice for a really, really, really long time in the Mm -hmm. Tibetan Buddhist lineage. And so I showed up thinking it was the grand opening (laughs) and it was a blessing empowerment for Avalokiteshvara. And it was an all day, basically heavy hitter. I and I just stumbled into it. So I showed up and the and they were kind of they looked at me like, who are you? You know, and I was mm-hmm. maybe like 20. Mm-hmm. And I everybody else was part of the Sangha and had been there forever. And then I just mm-hmm. walked in off the street and thankfully <laughs> they let me stay, but it was like a mm-hmm. almost a probably like a 20 hour, maybe that's an exaggeration, 15 hour, like all day, oh money pod me hum. Mm. practice. Om Mani Padme Hum, Om Mani Padme Hum, Om Mani Padme Hum, Om Mani Padme Hum. So that was my introduction to mantra, was through just, that blessing. Just like a casual, just like, yeah, a couple times. <laughs> 15 <laughs> hours. I love that. Out of the gate was what yeah. it was. And then, wow. of course, it's still so embedded and so resonant with me mm-hmm. now. And that was my meditation practice. After that, I would go to the um, meditation center and mm-hmm. continue that practice. Mm-hmm. But I was in that for a while. And then I didn't, when I, in my yoga teacher training in 2002, we did chant, we chanted mm-hmm. and we learned different mantras. And I loved the, it's almost like when you get done chanting, you feel like when you come out of Shavasana. Yeah, that's the joke I literally always tell. Like, you're going to feel the same, but you won't have had to work hard at all. (laughs) There's no sweating. You're just sitting there singing, but you feel the same. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. So I noticed that then, though I wasn't, I don't have a musical background. I'm a music Mm -hmm. lover, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't. I mean, if anything, I've like a lot of people, a lot of scarring and trauma around singing in my own voice. And mm-hmm. I had never learned to play an instrument also. Mm-hmm. And then it was, I was in California in Arcata in 2005 and I did a kirtan with Bhagavan Das. Mm-hmm. And that was incredible. It was the first time I had chanted with like, you know, a big sound system and mm-hmm. lots of instruments and him as the channel and then mm-hmm. gone into like a deep trance state a psychedelic state pretty much mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. through the chanting. And then that blew me open to the power mm-hmm. of chanting. Mm-hmm. And so I guess those were kind of like my gateways and avenues. And then mm-hmm. over time I became friends with Sheila Bringy. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Mm-mm. She's an Indian woman who plays the harp and harmonium and sings. She was trained at Cal arts. And so just a very high level mm-hmm. musician gorgeous voice and through Udaya Yoga became familiar with her mm-hmm. and her music and invited her to my studio in Boise to lead kirtan trainings, like weekend kirtan immersions, mm. basically so I could learn from her. <laughs> <laughs> nice. nice. I, never, I never made money on the trainings, but yeah. I wanted it to have happen just uh-huh. so I could attend. So she's come to Boise probably like three times now and mm. kind of repeated the same kind of training. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't until May of last year that I finally buy myself a harmonium. 
which was a really big deal. Yeah, totally. And then began like my home chanting practice Mm -hmm. while trying to learn the harmonium inspired by Sheila Mm -hmm. and what I learned from her. And then it wasn't until the fall of last year that I finally chanted in class with my students. And how was it? (laughs) Well, it was this really interesting experience where I teach a Saturday class that's usually really full, Mm -hmm. but I've been gone a lot during the summer. And so I come into class and there's maybe only like five students. And I was like, and it was the first time I brought in the harmonium. I'm like, well, maybe this is better because there's, you know, it's not big of a crowd to try to convince. But there was one kid in class, this guy who I'd never seen before at all. It was brand new. But I I was, and I decided to chant the guru mantra, which I didn't really know. I just like picked it on like, this is what we're doing. Like that morning I decided to do the guru mantra. And I printed it out on a piece of paper and gave it to everybody. Uh I never had led a chance at all to a group. And I remember just thinking about this guy, like, I'm never going to see him again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure I freaked him out. And then fast forward a couple of weeks later, um, my yoga teacher training was about to start. And this guy, after one of my classes, was like, hey, I'm thinking about joining the teacher training. Can you tell me more about it? And so we talked about it and I finally said, well, how, like, how'd you find the studio? Like what's making you interested in the training? And he's like, well, about a month ago, I came to your class and you like lumbered in with this big giant wooden box (laughs) and made us do this weird chant thing that just went on forever and ever. And I'm like, and you're now wanting to join my teacher training because of this? (laughs) Just went on and on. (laughs) That box. (laughs) <laughs> but so I thought it good. was such an awesome affirmation yeah. from the universe of like, I thought I did terrible yeah. and this yeah, other yeah. thing was going on, but really I just converted somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is fascinating to me how these different entry points draw different people. And um, like one of the things I did at my studio from the very beginning was that we had Friday night kirtans and I had hosted uh, kirtans at my teacher's studio for years before that. And, you know, a couple of people would come here and there. And, and when Brooklyn Yoga School opened, I don't, I don't even understand how this happened. But very, very quickly, the Friday night kirtan slot just became this big thing that all these people came to. And they weren't people who came to the yoga classes. Um, but we would have like 50 people there for a Friday night kirtan. And um, it just was so amazing to me that there was this whole flow of people connecting in with that practice who um, just, you know, like they weren't drawn to the other avenues in. Like they didn't, they didn't stay after class. Like, and people would drive in from out of state because they were just so hungry for this chanting practice. Wow. Um, Yeah, it was really incredible. And that was the one slot that through all the years of BYS stayed exactly the same. Every other class would change and different permutations, but Friday nights at eight o'clock was always kirtan. And it was just always this amazing energy there. So that really um, struck me in a, in a big way. And, and then I would always think like, oh, well, 
that was just a fluke, but just year after year, it was this huge, this huge community that grew there. And it was only like five of us who, five or six of us who would leave. So we would probably each do like one kirtan a month. Uh-huh. And it was always the same, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm doing this whole fancy thing now. No, it was like, what happened the second year was the same as year eight. And it was um, just this really amazing thing to witness how people connected with it. So that opened my eyes a lot, um, especially given the popularity of, you know, asana classes and the physical postures, just how many people loved this other thing. Yeah. And um, and what happened to them as they would do it year after year after year. So that was really fascinating. So we, you kind of just don't know. And it's definitely super weird. It's super weird. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, and as somebody who was like a musician for a long time, now I really only just do mantra-based music. And um, it's hilarious to me just like how weird it still sometimes feels to me when I am talking to a stranger or something. They're like, oh, you're a musician. What do you do? And I'm like, oh, it's real weird. It's real weird. <laughs> but who connects to it and, and who's drawn in? And it's, it's, a really, it's really cool to see that because something else is cooking there that's really um, quite powerful. It's um, just my, it's just my favorite. It's the best. It's the best, the best, the best. Yeah. And at my studio now, we're just starting to do monthly kirtans and I'm about to open a meditation studio. And my desire is to have, like you just described a Friday night kirtan mm-hmm. or something like that, where it's every single yeah. week and super regular. And it feels too like that other element, like I described of coming out of the closet too, mm-hmm. like that moment when mm-hmm. I brought my harmonium into the studio <laughs> and sort of modeling for the students too, like, hey, we can take risks and we can mm-hmm. change and we can evolve and yeah, let's try yeah. this together. Let's see mm-hmm. how it feels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just love it. Well, I always, um, like my introduction to it really came from my teacher, Dharma Mitra, who he was somebody who was like the the whole shebang of of yoga. It was the philosophy, it was pranayama, it was relaxation, and it was a lot of mantras. And it wasn't at all um, presented in a way that was like um, aesthetically that pleasing. You know, he would just, it was just about singing your heart out. It wasn't like this has to you know, sound great. You're not going to be Mariah Carey. Mm -hmm. That's not what this is about. And he had this like, you know, rickety old harmonium that sounded like, you know, a dying (laughs) accordion. (laughs) It was like, it wasn't soothing musically. And um, so it was interesting that that was kind of my entry point. And I decided when I started doing mantra practice on my own that I would um, when I started studying yoga full-time, I, I'd kind of hit a wall with my career as a musician. And so I decided to like take a break for a year and do this other thing. And it took me a long time to actually kind of unlearn a lot of performance training. Mm-hmm. Um, because on the outside, you know, it looks very similar. I'm sitting down and playing this instrument, I'm singing, but what you do with your attention is totally radically different um it's not at all trying to sound a certain way it's just 
trying to gather your attention fully into the mantra. So um, it took me a long time to like understand that nuance. And I think a lot of people, when they first come in, they have that social anxiety. I mean, it's just weird to sing with people anyway, but yes, there's no model for understanding. Like this isn't actually about looking cool or doing, <laughs> doing a certain thing. It isn't about how you sound contrary to everything our culture tells you about what's going to make you feel good. Um, it's actually opposite of that. And so I love offering people the space where they can put that stuff down and really just try this thing um, that's in a lot of ways contrary to our conditioning. And it's like, okay, well, I'm going to sing this thing. It seems really simple and kind of unassuming. And then for them to see for themselves what it feels like to take a break from, oh, I got to be really together and perfect and present myself a certain way. Um, like, what is it like to not dial that in for 10 minutes, put that baggage down? And then what, what happens, what's cooking inside the mantra itself? And this is kind of fun because like, um, when I, so I have this book out now about mantra practice, which is, um, yeah, this kinda, is what I'm so curious about to your book, a little bit of mantra and introduction mm-hmm. to sacred sound. Yeah. It's hilarious to me that I have a book because <laughs> I just am doing my thing. And then a publisher was like, Hey, will you write this book? And I said, sure. And now a book exists, but it's a really beautiful book too. When I was at the Ramdas retreat in May and they have that like little kind of bookstore section. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yours was the one book that I thought, oh, I want to buy that. And I took a picture of it. I'm like, I'm not going to buy it now because I don't want to travel with it, but I'm going <gasps> to buy that when I get home. Amazing. Just your book. Jumped out. Amazing. Well, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, like when I was doing the book, most of it really just sourced from my own just years of, of doing the practice and training. But I did a fair amount of um, research um, because there's a whole chapter on the science of, of kind of what happens when you do these practices, um, which was really interesting for me because I'm somebody who predominantly teaches from an experience-based place. Um, Like, you know, some people will go and they'll memorize the Bhagavad Gita and then they'll teach from that place. But I'm coming from a practitioner side. Um, I'm not like a super heady, like I'm not going to start citing things (laughs) at any point. Um, So You know it works because it feels good. I know it works because it's changed my life and saved my life in a lot of ways. And so it was very interesting for me to sort of look into that window after having had this experience of, you know, just years and years of digging myself out of holes with mantra practice, you know, being in places where I was extraordinarily stuck or afraid or frightened and using mantras and feeling how they would literally shift and open and change my experience to then look at, well, what happens when, you know, they put, they hook somebody up to a bunch of machines and see what happens. And it was so 
fascinating to see that. Um, and also just how mysterious it is that there are certain words that if you repeat them over and over, have a different effect on you physiologically, on your blood pressure, on your genes, and that other words don't do that. Like, what is that? Well, that's amazing. That is amazing. So, um, and of course, if you look into the, you know, the history of where a lot of these mantras source, the book predominantly focuses on um, the Hindu culture and pantheon, because that's where the majority of my experience lies. But um, there's pretty mystical answers to those questions of like, well, why is the word om? Like, why is it different from the word Starbucks, for example? Like, why does reciting that word do something different? And um, there's just these really esoteric answers. Like, in that culture, they, they say, well, you know, om is the sound of the creation of the universe. Like, oh, okay, sure, then, that's cool. <laughs> I'll just say that. <laughs> like, when... We go to a group of strangers and you're like, hey, say this word. And someone says, why? You're like, well, obviously, it's the sound <laughs> of the creation of the universe, Bob. I think we all know that. But I just love that it's that mysterious. And at the same time, there's all this scientific data that it is actually different. And um, one of the studies in the book is, is a direct study of that. It's um, the difference of somebody who says a mantra versus saying another word. And in that case, it's kind of hilarious because it's called the Santa Claus study. Uh -huh. And the mantra was a mantra that um, was included the name of the Buddha. So I think that's maybe why they chose the word Santa Claus as a, <laughs> as a comparison. But um, do you want to hear what the study is? Yeah. Like, did okay. you say Santa Claus or you said... Or you said this mantra with the, with the Buddha's name in it. So, and basically what they did is they had someone look at a, what was considered a neutral image or photo, and then um, a negative photo. And so they had, which is a little complicated. Some studies are usually more simple than that. But so basically... It's like, okay, here's a picture of like a dog and you're going to say the word Santa Claus and they would study what the brain would do. And then you're going to look at this picture of, you know, like a baby that's really upset and crying and, you know, like that. And you're going to say Santa Claus and see what the brain does. So, and then with the mantra for both of those. And what was fascinating was that when the word Santa Claus was used, the brain did exactly what they thought would be expected. Um, like the areas that lit up um, for the neutral photo were as expected. And then for this negative photo as expected, but for the mantra, when they did it, it was as expected for the neutral photo. But when they went over to the negative one, when they said the mantra, the brain did what it did for the neutral photo. Mm. And that is fascinating. And these were not long time practitioners. They were just people who were doing it 
kind of straight out of the, you know, new to mantra practice. And so that's a really interesting indicator. Um, like what was happening in that word that was like, you could almost view that as like a protection of some kind, which is in some cases how the word mantra is um, actually translated from Sanskrit is a protection of the mind. Um, and I just love that that data is there and that we also don't exactly have an answer, but when people try it, they often have, you know, these really positive results of, you know, the system calming down or less anxiety or feeling more connected, mm-hmm. more open. So it's a, it's a really fun space to explore with people who are trying it for the first time. And I love that you're doing that expansion of your program. I think it'll be great to have Fridays. Yeah. I just, like I said, I love it so much that I'm, I've just reached this point where I no longer can't not share it. Yeah. And I use it so much in my own life. um, Mm -hmm. Often unbeknownst to people around me, you know, when I invoke the mantra and to like create a shift in the field or in the environment Mm -hmm. that I'm in or to Mm -hmm. calm my own nervous system or to help Mm -hmm. somebody else out. I use it all of the time as I'm sure you do too. Yeah. Yeah. And that I think is the beauty of um, kind of discovering mantra practice. It's the different mantras. They're really like invocations for different states different uh like qualitative states of being so um just through your own experience you can kind of find like oh well even if you don't know the meaning and for years i refused to know the meanings of mantras because i just wanted to have the experience and i was like i don't need to know what it means i just i know that omno ashivaya does this to me and then you can call on that whenever you need that. So it's, it's a pretty beautiful way to just navigate the waters of your day. Absolutely. Um, you know, if there's like a moment when you're feeling frazzled and you need to like pull the fragments in and kind of get more centered or a place where you feel really dull and you need to, you know, raise your energy up and expand out you just figure out for yourself kind of what does that and and it doesn't take long of whether it's like sitting in your car for two minutes or like taking a moment in the bathroom before a meeting um, to access that state of being and then you're cooking. Yeah, I find too that the medicine in a way just spontaneously arises in the mm. moment that it wants to be spoken. Mm. Yeah. It'll just course. like, uh, it just comes up inside of me. Even this mm-hmm. morning, anecdotally, this I took Christian to the airport early this mm-hmm. morning. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me, because he's got a show this weekend on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And he was feeling quite agitated and upset and a little jagged. And I was sensing that when we were driving. And then Ram, 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 just kind of... Mm-hmm came through me that I was doing it internally for only like four repetitions perhaps. Mm-hmm. And like that far into it, he just picked up my hand and just kissed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where 10 seconds before I felt like that wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's pretty beautiful. The um, just how direct of a result can come through, especially I think um, when I think that can be surprising for people when you're working in such an internal way. Like you said, you just said it internally. It wasn't like, hey, I think we should talk about it. Like, maybe you need some protein. Come on. Like, like no, you just shifted something on the internal and the way that gets reflected out in our external lives is, um, it's so fun, that dance. And I think um, a lot of people, you know, there, there's just not that many forums in our culture that explore that. And so that's one of the really beautiful things of having a practice like this is you can play with that and see like, oh, what happens if I, if I do this internally? Like, how does that affect what's happening out there? And, um, and opens up just like a whole realm of possibility that we might not have accessible otherwise. Magic. It's magic. Yeah. It's pretty great. It's really great. Oh my gosh, Lily. I feel like we could talk and talk and talk. It's already been like <laughs> I know, I know. Over an hour and a half. I feel I like this it. could be a good spot to end. Yeah, totally. But tell our listeners where they can find you or what you're up to next. Oh yeah. Both. Well, um, you can find me at lilycushman.com and um, I'm this like for the rest of the summer, I'm I'm still in my nap. <laughs> my mom now and then in the fall I'm I'm gonna be teaching again and I've um I'm relocated to the Bay Area but I still do events in New York and I'm teaching this fall uh at a retreat with Sharon Salzberg and Krishna Das up in uh kind of up near Woodstock so you can come and do some asana with me and hang out with them if you want to and um but I do all kinds of different events. So there's lots of ways to hang out. And uh, and then the book is there. So if you're into mantras, you can check out the book. And A little bit of mantras. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, this was like so delightful. I love it. Yeah. Ditto. Thank you so much. Thank you yeah. so, 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 so much. And I'll put more information about you and links to these things in cool. the bio. Great. Um, but I can't wait till our paths cross again. I know. I want to get you out here to Boise, back to yeah, Boise. Definitely. Definitely. And I'll see you um, next Friday, see, right? At the I'll see you next Friday. Sports yeah. Ram Das release party. Yeah. It's going to be magic. Yeah. Okay. We okay. can just live cast us hanging out. People will want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the ultimate podcast. It's like us okay. eating. Oh, mm. <laughs> next level. Next level. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see you next week. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, more soon. Okay.
Thank you.